Welcome to Crest in partnership with Elusive, producer Dodd here, and I've just finished cutting together an amazing guest. Stand by for Tom and Rhino's chat with one of the defining characters in the quest to surf and then conquer the unridden realm. Buzzy Kerbox has told us some incredible tales here, and I have to say what a really, really nice guy he was too, so this is well worth the listen. Just before we start, though, we'd like to thank everybody who responded to our emergency results show from the Welsh Nationals. It definitely makes us think that we should be doing this sort of thing more in future, especially when events like the Wilkinson Sword Loo back on soon and the British also taking place in Wales next year. On that note, if you've got ideas for how we can engage with and cover the surfing communities we represent, then please get in touch. We love an email or a DM for any reason. Reminders of how to do that at the end of the show. Anyway, here it is. The penultimate of our planned interviews for this year, the legend that is Buzzy Kerbox. He's the last but one guest of the season, and put quite simply, he is a man who rides mountains. With both a competitive shortboard track record and involvement in some of the most extreme moments the sport has ever seen, Buzzy Kerbox is someone whose tail stands out in world surfing. Coming up in the next hour, we meet one of the pioneers of the unridden realm. Welcome to Crest, Buzzy. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, I absolutely echo that. Welcome indeed to Crest in partnership with Elusive Buzzy. It is an honor to have you on. My pleasure. Um, small, small world then, Buzzy. Let, let's get the, uh, the Welsh connections out of the way here. So my dad rings me up and he says that he's just met you because you've been staying at Tom Craig's place in California. Yep. Uh, and then when Wales gets mentioned... Um, in a conversation over there. It's not only then that Tom Craig mentions that he thinks his son, Cody, won an event here in the 90s. Um, and I, you know Cody as well, I, I presume, if you've, if you've been I haven't met him. I, right, I know okay. of him, but I haven't met him personally. Okay. Um, well, well, yeah, so it turns out that Tom Craig's son, um, not only did he win an event over here when, when you know, they were professional longboarders at the time, but he and Jay Moriarty on that same trip actually came and surfed the local point break here um, and it was on my birthday, and it was one of the best days ever with a with a Welsh legend, Guts Griffiths. And I can remember that session like it was yesterday. But it, it was promoting a book in that had you in California at the time, yeah, making waves, right? Yes, yeah. I wrote I wrote a book called Making Waves, sort of my life story as it weaves through the evolution of surfing. And yeah. uh, I it came out at the end of nineteen. I was going to do a book tour in twenty, and I pushed it back and got to it this year. Yeah, sensible decision. Good trip. You go to quite a few places across. I California. went to a lot of places. I had a great time. I uh, I kept updated on my Instagram and uh, had quite a following of uh, some of my antics along the way, and that was really yeah. fun. I had a great time. Looked like a really good road trip that did. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of the best ones I think that California in uh, in summertime. Yeah. So, um, so so what gave you the idea for putting that book together in the first place, Buzzy? Well, you know, I'm a, I was born in Indianapolis, and I moved to Hawaii when I was 10 and uh, worked my way through to become a champion surfer, and I just thought that was an interesting story. Yeah. But then as time went on, it got more interesting, and I started modeling for Ralph Lauren and started towing surfing. So I don't know, in the back of my mind, I always thought it was an interesting story that someday I would write a book and... While I was in school, 
in college, uh, I took a writing class and they, the teacher said, keep a journal. So I kept a journal and in that journal, I'd write stuff every day and I'd clip in postcards and bus tickets or whatever, concert tickets or whatever. And right, kept, yeah. kept a, a diary of diary journal of, of, uh, all the hay, highlights of my heyday years. And mm-hmm. so I went, went back at that and all the pictures I've always taken pictures and other people taking pictures of me. And I thought, you know, someday I'm going to write a book. And my wife said, you keep talking about someday you're going to write it. So why don't you just do it? So I got yeah. down to brass tacks and, and made it happen. It took a lot longer. It was a lot harder than I it expected. It did take a while, did it? Yeah. Ended up taking yeah. three years. I wow. had to reach out to every photographer to get permission to use pictures and get every, you know, my editor was uh, very crazed about getting every detail right, every yeah. date, every name, every spelling, everything. So it... Uh, meticulously came together and then we scrutinized over every page because it's not just like writing that every page has pictures and and yeah. uh very sort of artsy book yeah layout and things of like that being very important that do you know what buzzy having worked around surf books for a long time i actually don't think three years is is that long a time to put together <laughs> the kind of project that you've put together because i mean the 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 amount of photography in that book you know i think it, it, have you seen the book have you guys seen yeah, it yeah 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 i think to be able to get that stuff together um to curate it in the way that you guys have done there's some there's some incredible pictures in there and yeah. uh yeah you know if you've been putting all the permissions together you know i think to do that in three years um that's that's pretty good going i noticed as well um through your website that the first two reviewers of the book i love this were kai lenny and Ralph Lauren, which kind of pretty much sums up uh, your career, really, doesn't it? Yeah, pretty much does. Yeah, I figure who, you know, whose uh, who's words should I, would be better than those guys, you know, talking about my, my book. So I threw yeah. that in right off the bat. That's awesome. That's really cool. But, Buzzy, we'll talk a little bit more about balancing your surfing and modeling career a little bit later on uh, in the show. But um, first, I'd really like to ask you, what, what what was it that attracted you to like the bigger surf, the bigger stuff in the first place? Was it always something that you had an appetite for, or did you start surfing more of as a fun activity and then discover the adrenaline bit down the, the other end of the line? Well, for me, I started out as a surfer and competitive surfer, and a lot of the contests weren't in giant waves, and yeah. uh, so I was a performance surfer i i like sunset pipeline where waimea got big it was pretty much a big drop and straight out in front of the white water wasn't much of a performance wave so yeah. i would slip over to honolua bay and it'd be like you know six to eight feet and perfect with barrels so yeah. i was never a big wave guy and uh it just when laird and i started towing with the zodiac we were riding you know, uh, backyards and it was 12 to 15. It wasn't massive. It wasn't like, Oh, we're going out to, to ride the giant surf that ever existed. We were just out there to catch these waves that were an unutilized resource on the second reef. Mm-hmm. But as we got better with our technique and Laird's hunger for bigger and bigger surf as bigger swells came, then I had to up my game and try to, to, uh, keep up with, with my partner and ride bigger and bigger waves. So I, I was never 
an adrenaline junkie. It wasn't like a rush. I just want the, the gnarliest one. It was just as, as they got bigger and our equipment, equipment got better, we were able to ride big waves with a uh, high degree of performance. And that, that was what was exciting to me. Wow. That's, yeah, that's an incredible story. That sort of um, movement into the bigger surf, I guess, is how it really would it's, happen rather than you just jumping into it full, full, full force. When, you're, when your buddy is Laird Hamilton, you know, you just, <laughs> I, sh- I should have known I was going to get in some big shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But before all that, uh, Buzzy, you were a pretty formidable competitor before developing uh, like your big wave sort of uh, aspect of your surfing career, weren't you? You had a huge win at the World Cup at Sunset in 78, wasn't that right? It was at Sunset Beach, yeah. Yeah. Sunset, and that remains to be, yeah. to this day, one of the most important events on the tour. Was it a, was it a big sort of, sort of event in your competitive career for you? Yeah, I, at that point, I'd been on the world tour for two years and I think coming into Hawaii, coming into that last event, I was uh, 10th in the world on the ranking. And that was, you know, I've been doing the world tour a few years and making finals and getting fourths and fifths. And my dad just kept telling me, you've got to win one. You've got to win one. So I focused on the World Cup. I put that in my brain. I, I dreamt it. I trained for it. I focused. I, I just wanted that contest more than anything in the world. I figure if I'm going to win one, I might as well win the biggest one there is. So I put all my effort and, and focus on that. And um, re- I mean, really, my dad was my big supporter. Not everybody else, you know, was a big supporter of me. I was a bit of a dark horse. And and Hawaii, there was Dane and Michael Ho and Bertelman and these guys that got yeah. a lot more of a local push than I did. Not, yeah, not that I didn't get some, but it wasn't, you know, I wasn't the, the local favorite kid. Um, so I had my dad supporting me and pushing me and, and, uh, I set that goal and I, I knew that, uh, you know, I wasn't the best surfer in the world, but I just set my mind to it and focused on it and worked hard. And, and the day of the contest, it's, uh, everything just went my way. Like it always does in competitions, it's a bit of a, it's yeah. sometimes not the best surfer who wins, but somebody who's determined and has got that drive, yeah. isn't it? See, back then so, too, it was, it was different. There was more of an opportunity for somebody like me because it was based on three and sometimes four waves in a heat. So uh, you could, by being, uh, I realized early that being a good competitive surfer, you had to be a good paddler. So I started paddle training and doing paddle races and became one of the fastest paddlers in the world as, as help to, to do better competitively. And, yeah. you know, a day you get a day at sunset and you got to paddle way out and go heat after heat. Your fitness is important and your course, paddling yeah. is important. And it's, you know, three rides. And I, I, I don't know if I didn't necessarily surf, you know, I wasn't a better surfer than Ian, but in the final, it just came together and, and I made it happen and was able to win. And that was like a David and Goliath story. It was like, you know, kind of the the underdog comes through the, the biggest event. But the guy who wins, that's the only fact that matters at the end of the day, though, then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that competitive uh, edge that you had back then, does that sort of, is that still with you today? Are you, like, do you follow competitive surfing, pro surfing quite keenly today, like we all do? 
Yeah. You know, I grew up with two older brothers. So I think yeah. that was probably the, uh, the underlying factor that made me grow up competitive, trying to, trying to compete with my older brothers. And so I'm, I've always been fiercely competitive and, you know, we've had masters events and still do stuff, but uh, I, I still love to watch surfing. I just watched the WSL finals day at trestles and that was amazing. I, I, uh, you know, watch every ride and it's just, I'm blown away how at the talent that these guys have now Medina, you know, going in, I didn't think anybody was mm. going to be able to beat him, but he put on no. a show that was just out of this world. It's incredible. But, I mean, his, he's so good in the air and all those maneuvers, but his on, on the wave surfing too is, mm. you know, his tube riding, his carves, his, you know, yeah. everything he does is amazing. The athleticism of it as well, isn't it? Yeah. Strength, just a you know. super talent everybody else yeah. i mean there's so many other great surfers but medina just was uh unstoppable i, di I didn't think anybody would be able to stop him and nobody came close yeah i mean this week buzzy those guys certainly really have put on a show and like it was a really watchable spectacle but obviously things have changed now and we've seen the, the tours finished here in california uh, instead of Hawaii. What, what's your thoughts on that? Would you prefer to see the tour end in, uh, at the end of the year in December in Pipe? Uh, you know, that's how it always was. And mm. I, I like that. I like that it was at Pipeline. I, I did like the format of the top five guys going at it f for the world mm. title. I, th I thought I like that was an exciting, exciting mm. format. Uh, would that have been more exciting at Pipeline at the end of the year? Probably. Yeah. But, you know, with, with uh, COVID and all the issues yeah. and permits and stuff, it's, yeah. it's they're dealing with what they can. And it's the uh, best and, of a bad you know, situation. Definitely in a perfect world, that, that day would, would have happened at Pipeline. That's right, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a great week and it was a great spectacle. But, uh, but yeah, surfing is a sport which is, as we know, changes at a very rapid pace compared to other sports. Um, and you've been able to influence some of those key turning points. And in fact, you're widely credited with coming up with the idea of towing into waves along with lead, as you mentioned earlier. How did that relationship with lead come about? Uh, you know, I knew Laird as a little kid. He used to, him and his dad, uh, Bill Hamilton, lived uh, at, at Pipeline the, behind Jerry's house. There was a little house where they lived. So I knew him as a little kid on the beach. And and then I didn't see him for years. And then uh, we hit it off on a GQ shoot uh, we were doing here in Hawaii. Bruce yeah. Weber was doing it. Sean Thompson was there, Laird and myself. And right. at that time, we sort of compared notes of what we'd been up to. And we were both doing a lot of windsurfing. And yeah. he had a place on Kauai. And I went, I'll, I'll come visit. I went and started hanging out with him. And we just hit it off and just uh, started doing a lot of stuff together and you know in the next few years kind of came became inseparable and yeah. bought land on maui and we just did channel crossings and and surfed and and just uh did a lot of stuff together yeah it was a, a hell of a relationship you guys had there and um what i was trying to get my head around as well you you guys had been sort of trying to access bigger waves um like where did the where was the point where you got to the point where you were like right we can just go out to Piahi now and surf or get towed in on the rib on the inflatable? Well, it was a, a progression. So we started at, at backyards, and the reason we were uh, on the second reef, we uh, Derek Laird and I, Derek Dorner, 
And yeah. uh, Laird and I had been windsurfing these outer reefs and realizing the potential of the waves out there because from shore you can't you couldn't really tell how good or rideable they were but when we we're out there on our windsurfers we went wow these waves are really good and in the meantime i had the zodiac and and we towed around in small days and just did the freeboarding behind you know the boat and so one day we decided well what if we took our boat my boat out here and tried to tow onto these waves so we we did that and uh and did it, you know, in 12 to 15 foot surf, not huge surf. Then we had one day that got really big. There was a, a freakish direction, kind of northeast well. And we got like 25 foot outside Lani Akea, which was just this wave that's very rare. I haven't seen it break like that since. Wow. And just, you know, we just kept up in our game. And then our friends on Maui, Mike Waltz and Mark Angulo and, and Dave Kalama, the, the windsurfer guys that we windsurfed a lot with, said, hey, while well, you guys were towing over there, we were windsurfing at this place, Piahi, and it might be really good for, for your towing technique. So we ha- at that point, we had the my Zodiac and Laird had just gotten a, a wave runner. He worked on the movie End of Summer 2, and at the end for payment, he said, you know, why don't you guys give me one of these wave runners? So we had the Zodiac and the Wave Runner, and then we were on Oahu, and we went, well, we want to get them to Maui, but we didn't have trailers. We, we stuffed the boat and the ski in the back of my truck, in the back of trucks, and would drive them what? and hand launch them and launch them off the beach. And you going from the beach? Wow. Yeah. Everything was beach yeah. launch. And so we thought, well, let's just drive them over to Maui. And so we waited for a Kona wind storm, which is the opposite of the normal wind that's actually right. pushing from Oahu towards Maui. And uh, it's, it's stormy conditions, but it was like 15 to 25 to 35 knot gusts heading, pushing us right to Maui. So we launched from Hawaii Kai yeah. and uh, Mike Waltz and, and uh, with me in the Zodiac and Laird on the Wave Runner, and we drove them like 90 something miles to, wow. uh, to Oahu, I mean, to Maui. And That's then once incredible. we had them on Maui, then we went and, and started experimenting at Piahi and realized that the first day it wasn't massive out there, but yeah. it was, it was big. And we just went, wow, this wave is really good. This is really good. We, I wonder how, how big it could handle, you know, what if we got a really big swell? We had no idea that you know, we're come to find out it could handle as big as Mother Nature could throw at it with yeah. perfection. What and sort of size does it start to does it start to feel the bottom at then, Piahi? You were talking about surfing it small to start with. You know, you can ride it when it's like twelve feet or maybe twelve right. to fifteen. It's it's it starts to break, but then it really at twenty and twenty five, it's it's hitting. It turns into a much more serious wave. Yeah. And, you know, then at, at 50 feet, it's uh, so the right and left are just absolutely amazing. And yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I was out there when Pete Cabrina got, to, I think it was a 71 foot, I think, measurement uh, on a left. And, wow. uh, you know, it was just a, a perfect way of it. So it's I mean, there's probably been 80 footers written, 80 foot face yeah. waves written out there. And uh, it's just, it's amazing. There's no other wave like it in the world. Yeah, I remember I had, uh, I wore out my VHS of a movie. I think the movie was called Strapped. Strapped, Um, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that must have been, (laughs) we're probably talking kind of like mid, 
even maybe pushing on towards late nineties by then. Yeah, would, would we yeah. have been? Yeah, yeah. So, that how did how did anyone first come to know that Piahi was there then? Because it, it it's quite a remote spot, isn't it? Was that just through through sort of long distance windsurfing, or had 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 it been on people's radar as a place where waves broke? Uh, it wasn't on on too many people's radar. Um, there's, I'm hearing different stories of, of guys that had surfed it and seen it first. Um, so I don't know factually exactly how it unfolded, but it was was pretty well-kept secret. Uh, Mm. the, the guys that did know about it weren't really telling anybody. And, um, it, for the first couple of years we were riding it, um, nothing really came out to the media. And then Eric Gator was still photographer Maui guy was shooting from the hill Dave Nash a video guy was shooting the video so once pictures and videos started coming out and one of the first uh videos was uh, I think it was wake up call about Mm. put put out by the strap guys trying to push the idea of uh, foot straps on surfboards really but what it ended up doing was selling the idea of this wave that we're riding and pretty soon got, you know, each year more and more guys were coming and, and before long it became the most crowded lineup in the world. Retailer in surf, skate or e-bikes? Contact Full Charge, suppliers of Venon and Studio surfboards, Pro-Light leashes, Sniper bodyboards, Churchill swim fins, Ari Nui seps, Voltaway e-bikes plus many more. We can also help you advertise your business by designing your own branded embroidered changing robes and towels. For more, contact fullchargerhino at gmail.com. But going back to that, uh, for you, Buzzy, your sort of first session at uh, Piahi, like how are you, I'm just trying to work out in my mind, like I guess you've obviously served a lot of big waves before that, beforehand. Like were you like prepared how did you prepare were you sort of likening piahi to say somewhere like waymere or big sunset were you just going hell for leather it's just like i just want to get out there you know and it would just just want to go and surf the biggest wave well you know it was the first few times it was it was big but it wasn't huge and then we Mm. got we got more and more comfortable out out there with our technique and then as it got bigger and bigger it was like we could handle it but uh, I've said this in other interviews. It's like, there's all this talk of like the hundred foot wave yeah, and I, you know, the guys want the bigger, bigger Laird, one of the biggest ones that come. And, and my friend Archie that I told, he always just wanted the biggest one. And I always said, if a hundred foot wave comes, I don't want it. I've never had a desire. <laughs> if, if the hundred foot shows just tow me over there because I'm not letting go of the rope. I'm not going on it. I don't want a hundred foot wave. It's not, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest wave I think I've ridden had a 60 foot face. And for me, that was plenty. And I just, I felt like if I had gone down on that wave, I probably would have uh, not survived back yeah, then yeah. too. I didn't, I didn't have inflation. I had this, this little cheesy thin flotation vest and, uh, I don't do breath hold training or any of that. It was, it, that thing yeah. probably would have killed me. So the last thing I wanted was a a bigger one, like a hundred footer. That's no thanks. Makes yeah, the other we, guys can we, have that. We spoke earlier this year to one of the Irish big wave surfers, uh, Almini, and he was saying about how he 
looks back at the equipment that he was first using um, and that it, it gives him chills to think about what could have actually happened to him at a few of those spots out on that west coast of Ireland. Yeah. And so you guys were starting. If you look at the equipment used nowadays and all the effort put into safety, and but you guys started with a with a Zodiac. So 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 do you ever look back and think like, whoa, stuff could have gone really wrong. There. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I I, I had some waves that uh, January twenty eighth, nineteen ninety eight. That was the day I rode my biggest wave and. Uh, my partner at the time, Victor Lopez, tried to tow me on this one that was, yeah, probably a 60-footer, but it had the West Bowl that kind of right. hooks on the end. And I decided that the last second I didn't want that one. And so uh. nor, as he thought he was flinging me in, I just held on. And then he, oh. he, he headed over to the channel. He looked back. I was still there. And you're still there. <laughs> <laughs> and that way, just absolutely like pinched and closed out. So I would have either had to pull in or straighten out and either option was not pretty. Wow. Probably. I don't know if I would have survived that one. If I, if I would uh, pulled into that thing, it was just and the meanest, toughest one on the corner, no inflation. Not, you know, it's, yeah, that, that, so uh, I, I feel like I'm lucky to be here. Yeah. Had, uh, and- did you always manage to make those good decisions or, or, or did you ever actually get into trouble with it at all? Oh, uh, you, you learn to make those good decisions by getting into trouble. That's how you learn. <laughs> right. but, then, yeah. but then there's instincts and sometimes you just got to, you know, choose the right thing. I, I had a, uh, a friend that had a helicopter permit and wanted to pick me up and fly. And I helicopter permit, you know, I, no, I don't yeah. think so. And that day he went and crashed and, and no, died. So no. it was just, an inst- you know, sometimes these instincts, you're just yeah. like, you know, decisions you make are, are can change your life. Wow. They're, yeah, they're for a reason. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is a it's heavy, heavy story. Yeah. Yeah. And Buzzy, whilst all this crazy stuff, this pioneering toe surfing was going on, you managed a very successful and lucrative modeling career with the likes of Ralph Lauren, Levi's, amongst others. So, like, was that a perfect job because of, like, the way the, the seasons go in the modeling and all the clothing? And was it, like, quite a challenge to keep, like, surf fit uh, while you go into all these shoots? And obviously with the modeling industry, I don't know whether you got involved heavily with it, but there's obviously a big party scene going on there as well. How did, how did it all work out for you? Well, my modeling was, although I did a lot of work, I mean, most models would say live in New York and, yeah. and do go-sees and, and try to get jobs all the time. And sometimes they'd go on location. And, but I just, uh, I flew in. I got the polo shoots. I, I, would, I would fly directly to locations. So we shot in London. We shot in Barbados. We shot uh hawaii we shot in different places so i would go in a week it'd be like a week shoot and then i'd be done and then i'd be home so it wasn't it wasn't taking up all my time so i could surf Mm. surf my brains out and then go work for a week and then be set for you know a while so it, it, it worked out and then i got of course i got other jobs but never i never lived in la or new york and and modeled full time i just would We'd get jobs, and once I started doing the polo stuff, other companies would go, "We want him," and they just fly me yeah. in, and I'd do their job and, and come home. So, 
didn't really, I didn't do the grind of the go sees and, and live in the city to, to be a model. You had, you had the best parts of that job then. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. So this would have involved going in and out of Europe a fair few times. And there's one great story that my dad was reminding me about that, uh, that you and Laird, when you were over on this side of the Atlantic, cause he was, he was doing the modeling work as well. Um, and I think that this one is actually, you mentioned Endless Summer 2 earlier. I think, I think Laird actually tells this story briefly um, to Jerry Lopez, Pat O'Connell and Wingnut in, in Endless Summer 2 when they're in G-Land. And he says that uh, you and he decided to paddleboard from Corsica in Italy, but that you got the distances wrong. Um, so so uh, anyone who remembers Endless Summer 2 will remember Laird telling that story, but you were actually with him. And so, so what exactly happened there? Well, that was, that was two weeks after we paddled the English channel and nice. uh, we did that. And then Laird said, well, I've, I've windsurfed in the Mediterranean and Corsica. And I, I think we should go paddle from Corsica to Elba. And so we got the chart out and said 37, but it didn't say what. And so we thought, well, it's, it's Europe, everything's in kilometers, so it must be 37 kilometers, right? which is only 24 miles, so that's, that's not that big a deal, but it looked pretty yeah. far on the map, and, and uh, so we went and, and did that, and uh, you know, we had a helicopter film in us. We said, okay, we're going to be, be there in like three and a half, four hours. This will be an easy day after the English Channel. There's no current. There's no predators you know we're just in the mediterranean calm sea and and uh so about you know four hours in we saw the helicopter go back past on their on their way back to corsica and uh elb still looked really freaking far away so, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. so you're like Ned, was that actually uh, kilometers uh, so we arrived at dark wow. uh, nine hour paddle and we went up and found this little restaurant and we started talking to the owner of the restaurant and he said, that's 37 nautical miles, which is 44 oh. statute miles. So it was <laughs> basically double the distance that we expected and uh, was uh, one heck of a paddle. Yeah, I have some, there's some pictures in the book about that. And then, yeah. so we said to the guy, so where's the ferry? We want to catch the ferry back to Corsica, you know, in the morning. He goes, well, it's, it's that, that was my birthday, September 25th. He goes, the season ended two weeks ago. We got, okay. So where's the airport? We'll catch a little flight back. He goes, well, the airport's closed too. We go, we're looking back across <laughs> the channel going, Rick, do we really got to paddle back? <laughs> Another <He> nine said, <laughs> hours. <laughs> and he said, well, you, you can, You've got to take the, uh, we had to catch a bus to the ferry station and a ferry to mainland Italy. And then from mainland Italy, we had to get to, to Laverno. So we had to catch a ferry to a bus to Laverno to catch the ferry back to Corsica. It took two days. All, and this is all with the I had boards, was my, yeah? with our paddle boards, no clothes. <laughs> I had our, I had a credit card, so I, I was going to buy a shoes, and I went in this Italian store, and they were like 200 bucks a pair. I was going to have to buy 202 pairs. I went, no way. Sorry, there. We didn't get the shoes. I bought a sweatshirt, but I mean, money was tight. We were just on our own. It was, you know, it was like uh, things. We didn't just 
buy everything we needed. We we're, we we're on a shoestring of a budget. So wow. we, we finally made it back and got, uh, got back to our car and got back to France. Wow. That's an incredible, and uh, you talk like you you do these incredible challenges that you've taken on in the ocean. And I was interested to know whether you you know like with with an endurance uh, challenge like that, what sort of uh, training was involved, and 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 the like actually with like big wave surfing because you mentioned earlier that holding your breath perhaps wasn't your strong point. Did you ever sort of do any um, breath hold training like deep sea? Um, what's it called free diving or anything like that just to sort of help you out with uh, holding your breath no um i i never did i just we went in the days when we were towing uh we we'd work out on the beach and and uh different pull-ups and you know we had our training regime but we didn't there was no classes that i had ever heard of for for breath holding or i i just had no idea i never did and i i wasn't very good at at it and but i never did anything to, to get it better didn't really know there was options to to really work on that yeah had i known kind of, i i would have but i i yeah. didn't even know that was an option that's probably a good thing because you were just confident in your body in itself as it was yeah and you know guys are like oh well get the spare air so you can you know if you're underwater you can just you're getting beat oh, you're gonna yeah, stick this mouthpiece in Can't exhale them, yeah. your last breath and hope it works that never seemed like a good option to me <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and you you mentioned crossing the english channel so was that before the that was two weeks two weeks before the corsica and so so you guys didn't necessarily learn then because didn't you guys run into a bit of trouble crossing the english channel as well and sort of uh, trouble, get the other side de and have a define trouble you mean like freighters and <laughs> all right okay i mean adventure and <laughs> <laughs> hypothermia there was a, there was yeah. a few obstacles but yeah and nowadays uh, you you've got to be careful when you arrive at the english channel that you've got all your papers in order nowadays because there's a there's a big clamp down on uh, you know on crossing the english channel what, what, what did you that's when probably because of us <laughs> <laughs> yeah. did anyone ask you who, where you'd come from when you arrived well there's, i there's actually these when two we, models walking up the beach when we got to uh to to dover and uh, they took one look in my eyes and, and realized I was hypothermic. So they took us to the hospital. And oh, wow. while, while in the hospital warming up, uh, some immigration lady came and, and wrote out a, uh, a piece of paper for us to show when we got back to France, mode right. of entry into, into England, surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> and so were these... Were these Paddleboards, as in that you, you know, prone paddleboards, or we're yes, not talking SCPs at this stage yet. Then no, that didn't happen. Yeah. Laird hadn't created that yet. Yeah. So, so it, it twelve, Laird 12 then, foot, twelve foot prone paddleboards that we used yeah. in the for races. And then it's it's Laird is largely behind the the advent of the SUP as well. Then, well, he made it a sport. I mean, guys had had stood on a board and paddled with the paddle that uh, there's uh, maybe a handful of guys that had done that in, in Waikiki. Yeah. And, yeah. but it wasn't really a sport like uh, the Troy brothers um, would put a camera around their neck and they use a canoe paddle on a tandem board and paddle out and take pictures of the tourists. And then this one other guy was riding some waves and, uh, but it, it wasn't really a sport. And then Laird, Laird pretty much single-handedly, turned it into a sport 
with mm. wave and race applications that spread yeah. all over the world. Are, are you an advocate of SUP? You know, I, w- I thought it was like I saw Laird doing and I was he up to now that point he and I had have falling out. I, I that looks kooky. Are you got to be kidding? You yeah. know. And then one day I was at down at Maliko and Larry goes here, give it a try. So I jumped on one of his boards and did a, a run with him. And then I went, wow, this is pretty cool. So yeah, yeah, I was. But he he'd already been at it for several months before I jumped in. And then uh, actually my my oldest son ended up being on the stand-up world tour for years, which is a wave wave and right. race tour around the world. Yeah. The, my dad was at um, Malibu. There was a big south swell. And I remember talking to him. I, I actually was lucky enough to be in um, Australia the same for the same swell. I surfed at uh, Coolangatta. And then um, there was a huge south swell and Laird surfed Malibu, like one of the biggest days in yeah. recent memory of Malibu. And I, uh, am I am I exaggerating this, or didn't he actually shoot the pier? Apparently, like he did. That, yeah, him and yeah, Alan Sarlo. Alan Sarlo was surfing Laird stand up, and they both uh, shot the pier several times. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah, my dad was there that day. Yeah, um, I didn't realize Alan Sarlo was with you. Yeah, Alan Sarlo is like the the guy that you've got to be nice to if you want to catch a wave in the Malibu. If you want to catch a wave at Malibu. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, no, no, I have actually seen footage of, um, of Salo on a, on an SUP there. Yeah. And he's, he's no, uh, but he, that day he was surfing. Alan was oh, surfing was and Laird was stand up. Was on the stand up. Wow. Yeah. Uh, cool. And, uh, talk about uh, sort of extracurricular activities. There's, uh, obviously we've seen the event of foil boarding, foiling at the moment coming through. A lot of guys have getting really into that, the likes of Kai Lenny and, and the such. Have, what are your thoughts on that? Are you, have you got involved with that sport at all? Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> it is. It, it, didn't I, I see no, a picture? I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I'm, I've just, uh, this last week, I've been uh, becoming a wing foiler. So I got a wing and, and my foil, I had a stand-up foil board. I yeah. do toe in foiling, but now I'm putting the wing with it, and it's just absolutely amazing. You get that it's wing a, powered, and you're up on the foil, and it's just it's just like the future. It's so, the future. It's amazing. But by the wing, do you mean something a device that you wear? No, the wing is like a it's it's basically like a kite that you hold. There's handles right. on it, so yeah. it's got an inflatable inflated lead edge, and then you just hold it in your hands, and that gives you enough power from the wind to get up on the foil and away you go. And then this is about, you know, sort of going on like a, a kind of coastal journey at this, you know, rather than actually going into a lineup and, and you can go into a wing. lineup and, and tack up and come through and ride the waves. There's different yeah. spots out here where there aren't very many people. You can yeah. do that. You can do a coast run where you just head off all the way down the coast, just powering yourself uh yeah. it, it's amazing that it's got, a lot of guys have been uh, kite kite wing uh foiling and now the wing foil is taking over and it's it's uh, you'll have to look it up and and see what yeah. i'm talking about but it's absolutely amazing and it's uh something i i plan to spend a lot of time doing in the future wow yeah because I, I we we see a fair bit of foil boarding around here where we are and and uh but i've not yet seen anyone doing that that sounds incredible it's it's amazing they go fast mm. the guys some of the kids on maui they're doing double flips now really so they just wow. pop and 
Yeah, it's 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 a new sport. We're on the the leading edge of it, but it's catching mm. on its applications and anywhere there's wind, it doesn't. It takes less wind than windsurfing, yeah. and so it's uh, it's fun in flat water, but it gets more fun in rough water and waves and all conditions. So it's 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 the future of of sport of water sports you- right now. Do you still spend much time windsurfing or is uh, wing filing now sort of uh, that's it? Is it going to take over windsurfing completely? Well, I hadn't been windsurfing much. And then uh, being back here on the North Shore, uh, my my last years on Maui, I was kind of over windsurfing and did more downwind stand-up paddling. And Mm. then I got here and I've been watching the days and, and I got some windsurf gear out and started windsurfing backyards again. But yeah. upwind i would see the wing foilers and they just were uh, the the wind at backyards tends to be very gusty and holy it'll be from three knots to 20 knots yeah. three to 20, 20 it's just it's so gusty and tricky and i kept looking up at the wingers and i went i want to do that yeah. so <laughs> it's just it, it's way more fun than than the windsurfing and so, and so we, we come up to nowadays then, so um, living on the North Shore again, so you, so you lived in Maui for a long time, you've moved back to the North Shore. Yeah. Um, is, is that, with a, you know, do any kind of lifestyle change you were looking to make to come back to the North Shore? Um, you know, I, I moved to Maui primarily, you know, with Laird to, uh, to windsurf, and nice. we did a lot of windsurfing, and, you know, that led to other stuff. But I kind of, as, as I got over the windsurfing, you know, I was like in Maui, but then I ended up getting divorced and I came back to, to the North Shore to do a talk story at Turtle Bay. And my oldest son right. was competing in a stand-up race uh, the next day at, at Turtle Bay. And mm. I, I met this lady and I ended up uh, hanging out with her. And then I started going back to Maui, back to Maui less and less commuting right okay and, so less, kind of and a, then i just ended up sort of organically ended up here back on the north shore it wasn't like well i'm going to move there it just sort of happened yeah. but uh, i'm real happy being back here on the north shore and um j- just before we before we close out here then buzzy can can i just ask a bit about your lifestyle now on the north shore then because the north shore is a very seasonal place isn't it you know, there's not a lot of surf there in summertime and then you know suddenly everything kind of changes um so you know walk us through you know how you'd how you'd kind of keep active uh, as a waterman during the various seasons in the north shore well in the summer it's um there's not much surf out here although the last two winters we we kept getting swells into the middle of summer out here it was amazing I, i mean it wasn't great surf but it'd be like two to four three to five, two to four. So I kept getting waves and then the wind, you know, you got the wind for, for foiling all the time. Yeah. And if there's a big swell in town, I'll drive into town and, and, and go surf the South shore. Right. Um, it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen sometimes. And then, you know, during the summer, like I, I went a, a month for my book tour this summer and, uh, you know, uh, uh, some summers I'll take a surf trip somewhere. Yeah. And so, you know, the summer goes by pretty quick. And in past years, I, I would spend the summer training for paddle racing and doing channel crossings and stuff. I'm yeah. not I'm not racing or doing much stand-up anymore. So I've just gotten back into my own fitness routine where I will go and paddle some. I swim some. I go to Waimea. I work out. 
Um, mm. So I'm trying to stay in top shape and I, I'm going to be 65 in a week. And I've just, I've got a goal now to be still surfing, you know, sunset Waimea at 65. So we'll see what happens this winter. Yeah, well, I, I think that's an amazing goal. And I got to say, you know, uh, Rhino and I can see you here. You look absolutely fighting sharp, Buzzy. So uh, you're, you're, you're <laughs> doing a real good job. I hope that I'm uh, somewhere close to that when I'm near near in 65. <laughs> um, talking about conventional surfing, then I, I don't even kind of know what exactly we call it now. We call it surfing, you know, because we've been yeah. talking about so many different disciplines what would your what would your quiver look like at the moment then as a you know as a as, as a surfer when you're just doing conventional paddling and pop up you know surfing? i've got uh i've got stand-up boards all sizes i've got short boards from 6.0 to uh 8.4 to, right. i'm just getting a new 9.4 for sunset this this year oh, nice. uh i got uh probably ride my 9.4 if i ride waimea again so that's going to be like a classic so, you know they, they used to call them the rhino chaser yeah, that's uh, yeah. I've got a 10 a 10 to uh, Dick Brewer that I busted out last year and had all my kids ride and we all surfed Waimea and, and rode that board. And then I just wow. got a, a new 9-4 Eric Arakawa coming hopefully next week. And nice. so I've got a full quiver of short boards and I'm here and I surf wherever, covering uh, yeah. the whole coast. I don't surf pipeline as much as I'd like to. It's just the crowd is such a frenzy out there. But if you Go to other places. You can still find plenty of surf and get some rides without a massive crowd. There's no, wow. there's no such thing as uncrowded. It's just a, yeah, a milder crowd. Yeah. Well, we do get uncrowded here, Buzzy, but it's freezing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's, cr- it's, it's it's crowded in the you know when when whenever anywhere is particularly good or when the or, you know or in the summer it's it's good. But you know it's a. Uh, it's freezing and the waves are small, but if you are ever over on these shores, Buzzy, and uh, you know you want us to fix you up with a chance to give a talk about the book or anything, uh, or or just to go for a surf, or uh, we got a little channel here, you know you can you can paddle over to England from here. Um, <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> they'll uh, yeah they'll welcome you with open arms. Yeah, and we've also got the the world's biggest tidal range as well. So uh, oh. you know that it, it, a few a few guys have done that paddle over to England, and they have to be you know you have to sort of time it really time well. It right. to sort of yeah. Go, yeah, you've got to go out at the tide for three hours and then get drawn back in for another three hours. So uh, anyway, th- there's an offer there, uh, open ended offer of the red carpet treatment if you're ever in Wales, Buzzy. Okay. So tell tell everybody they can follow my Instagram. I'm trying to boost up my Instagram. I've been uh, trying to. I posted a lot of stuff from my book tour. I don't know if you've seen my Instagram, but I try yeah. to make it pretty entertaining. Yeah, and, yeah. You'll, uh, you'll, have, you'll have Crest and both of our uh, presenters following you from now on, and our uh, our listeners will be picking you up when uh, when this one comes out. Yeah, so uh, cool. we'll do that for sure. And. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today, uh, Buzzy, on Crest in partnership with Elusive. You, you've been an inspiration to a generation of surfers. And uh, when I look at where the sport is now, I, I think that we've got to give you credit for the role that you've played in, in bringing that about. Oh, thank you. My, my motto is from a Tom Petty song, never slow down, you'll never grow old. and buzzy i would also like to say a massive thanks for coming on to crest today and sharing with us your incredible life stories uh and buzzy i'm really looking forward to as we just spoke about um getting stuck into reading your book actually and uh making waves it's called and uh and on that subject what's the website uh where can we find uh making waves from 
Well, the only place you can get it is on my website, buzzykerbox.com, but I can't. Okay. It, it's like it costs more to ship it to you guys than the cost of the book. Unfortunately, I don't have a distributor over there at the moment. It's something I'd like to, to do in the future. Um, if Yeah, it's... Uh, well, if any are listening, you, you know how to get in touch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, send me a message on buzzykerbox.com and I'll, I'll see you about trying to get some books over there. Awesome. Sounds cool. Yeah. Okay. So as you heard at the start, we're nearing the end of season two of Crest in partnership with Elusive. The success of the season has been in no small part to the listeners who've commented and fed back to us on the episodes and discussions we've had. So a reminder of how to do this, you can email us at castcrest at gmail.com or you can comment on either our Instagram or Twitter feeds. Our shows are all available on YouTube as well as the main podcast apps, Apple, Spotify and Google. If you like what you hear, please do leave a review to that effect. So it's a month before we meet our final guest of 2021 after Buzzy and uh, what a guest that will be. A fella from the Gower to finish again, Rhino. Not PJ this time, but somebody who does know PJ well, who's usually behind a lens and who's discovered more surf spots on UK shores than God himself. Any guesses? Uh, Who could that be, Tom? Who, indeed. If you haven't figured it out, We'll be beginning the Instagram hype soon enough. Yes, the mysterious character of whom we speak is indeed coming on Crest in partnership with Elusive. You can't wait. We can't wait. Even he can't wait, apparently. I can't Before wait that either. Finale, though. <laughs> <laughs> and Buzzy can't can wait. Can you tell me? I, I can't wait. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> we will as soon as we're as soon as we're off air here now, Buzzy. We'll tell you who this guy is. You, you probably uh, he, he'll uh, yeah he'll be a big fan of yours actually yeah. Um, so before that finale, we're going to do something a little bit different uh, and have a collaboration episode as our penultimate of the season with another one of the UK's top surf podcasts, The Grumpy Surfer. Ads Lyson and myself will be joined by the Pagans, i.e. Logan and Pat, so that's Wales's two WQS hopes, all being well, to have a chat about the international competitive season and to break down the WSL finals and upcoming Challenger Series events. That one will be available on both ours and the Grumpy Surfers platforms, so keep an eye out for it. In the meantime, hope you're getting some autumn swell. See you in the water, hopefully. Gwelechi and amor gobeith y'all. Aloha from Maui. I mean, North Shore. Cheers, Buzzy. <laughs> Thank you, Buzzy. <laughs> you. Cool. Right See you. See you guys. That was fun. <laughs>